Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. All right, as promised, tonight we are going to start the book of Esther. So you can start by turning to the book of Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 13. We will get there eventually. Let's review. That's right. I'm starting another book by saying let's review. Because on Wednesday nights for the last so many years, we have been going through the Old Testament. And I have been trying to do it chronologically which means that we're not going through the Old Testament book by book the way they appear in the Old Testament, but where they appear in history. And so we did the first five books of Moses. We read through verse by verse. We went through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then after that, we went through the time of Joshua and into the Promised Land, and then the time of the Judges and the time of Ruth. And the time that Israel was coming to Samuel and saying, we want a king. And so God gave them a ruinous king, King Saul. And then eventually King David. That's First and Second Samuel. And then we went through First and Second Kings to read about the succession of kings in the northern and southern kingdoms. And then saw the terrible way in which Israel apostatized away from the actual worship of God and started chasing their foreign gods in the way that Jeroboam took them off and took them into all kinds of idol worship until God reached the point where he took them out of their own land. And so we read through the Assyrian captivity. We read some of that in both First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. And then First and Second Kings or Second Kings ended at the final kings of the southern kingdom, the final part of the house of David, and then being led into the Babylonian captivity. If you look at the end of the book of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, which we're going to do in a moment, you read that the next thing that happens in the history of Israel is that Babylon is conquered by the Medes and the Persians. And so where we've been talking a lot about Babylon for the last so long, Babylon now decreases and the Medo-Persians rise up. Part of why that's so very important is that before Israel had served out their 70 years, before they had gone into the Babylonian captivity, Isaiah had predicted during the Assyrian captivity, he had predicted that not only was Israel going to be taken out of their land, but that they were eventually going to return to their land. And Isaiah names the king. He names a king Cyrus, names him by name 150 years in advance in order to say that it's King Cyrus who is going to allow the Israelites, the Jews in particular, the southern kingdom in particular, to return to their homeland, rebuild their city, rebuild their temple, all of which 
assumes that they're going to be out of Jerusalem and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed. Here's Isaiah predicting the reestablishment of all that kind of stuff and doing it way in advance and naming, like I said, that king by name. That is a historical reality. That's a fact. We know when Isaiah lived. We know when he prophesied. We know that King Cyrus was shown the prophecies of Isaiah And when he rose to power and ruled over Babylon, he ruled over the Jewish slaves who had been taken out of their land. And he was shown that he had actually been named by name 150 years in advance as being the king who was going to let the Israelites go back to their land. I think that's pretty compelling. If you happen to be the king and you go, oh, these people I've enslaved, their prophecies say that I'm going to let them go back. Historians are really flummoxed to explain why a king would allow slaves that they are dependent on for their food and for their building. Why would they let them go? Why would, they, why would a king just suddenly make a decree that, okay, all you Jews can go back to your land and you can rebuild the temple and rebuild your city and rebuild Jerusalem? It is because the providence of God worked in King Cyrus. Not only does Isaiah call him the king that's going to do that, but he calls him my anointed. Cyrus, my anointed. God anointed him to do this, but then God takes the time to say, though you have not known me, you don't even know who I am. And I have chosen you to be the one who are going to let my people come back to the land. So that all happens during this period of the Medo-Persians. When you get to the end of the book of Second Chronicles, you read that Babylon was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and the very next two books that you find in the Old Testament are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because those two books are about the Jews coming back to the land of Israel, back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, and it was a troublesome time. They had to work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other because so many of their enemies ganged up against them as they were trying to fulfill that prophecy of rebuilding their land, rebuilding the temple. So that was the first wave of people who went back to Jerusalem. King Cyrus allowed that anybody who wanted to go back could, but they didn't all go back. Some stayed in Babylon, which was now under the control of the Medes and the Persians. And then there was a second wave under the king Artaxerxes. Be happy that that's a name that has fallen out of common use. Be happy that you're called Frank and not Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes reestablished the Cyrus Decree So then there was another wave of Jews and Israelites who went back to finish the work that was started under Ezra and Nehemiah. Between Cyrus's decree and the decree of Artaxerxes, there's a period of time where there are still Jews living under Medo-Persian rule, living in Babylon, but living under the Medes and the Persians' control. That's the time of Esther. That's why I said all that, to kind of wrap up where Esther is. Esther is still there among the Persians and the Medes in the Babylonian area. She hasn't gone back, but the Jews are widely hated during that period, as they would be, because they were, remember, they were the slaves, they were the servants, and then they were freed by the king. So, of course, the people 
the day-to-day folks who used to have them doing all their dirty work for them would resent them because now they're set free. And even worse, they've been set free and they're still hanging around. So there's a lot of resentment toward the Jews. And so as you're going to see right at the beginning of Esther, Esther's uncle, Mordecai, tells her not to let on that she's a Jewess because the Jews are so widely disliked. As we go through the book of Esther, you're going to see that never once, and this is very, very interesting for a book of the Bible, never once is God mentioned. Not mentioned anywhere. And yet you see the absolute providence of God all the way through the book. You see God providentially steering the events of Esther's life. Because Esther, a Jewess, becomes queen of the Medes and the Persians. And because she ends up being queen, she is able to protect the Jews when, don't get out your hooters and sounds yet, but when Haman decides to kill off all the Jews. And he gets the king to agree with him, and he makes a decree, and and he's, he's going to destroy the Jews. And if it weren't for the fact that Esther was in the king's palace and had access to the king, the Jews would have been destroyed. But you see the providence of God entering in again and having the right person at the right time in the right place in order to accomplish that. So now, for you youngsters, this might seem like just old, ancient, Middle Eastern stuff. Who really cares about this? Who cares about the history of what went on in Persia with the Persian king and the, the Medes? There, Who cares anymore? Well, this week, Persia, which is now called Iran, stated publicly again, the leaders in Iran stated that they intend to wipe Israel off the map. Again, because the ancient hatred that goes on between the Persians, the Medes, the Iranians, and the Jews still exists today. Today, the president of Turkey, Erdogan, called on the nations that were Muslim, the Muslim nations of the Middle East, to all group up, to gather up, to forget their political differences or religious differences, and just all gang up against Israel. And of course, they're using what happened a couple days ago when the embassy, the United States embassy, was moved to Jerusalem and the outbreak of violence that happened at the border as a result. They're using that as the inspiration to gang up on Israel. There's really been no people group ever on the planet that has lasted as long as the Jews have, that have ever been as persecuted systematically, continually, over and over again, as the Jews have been. It's a really remarkable reality of history that the Jews are continually persecuted, and it goes on even up until today. Well, that's why the book of Esther is still so very relevant to what we're seeing going on today. That tension that you're going to see in the book of Esther, that hatred, that desire to destroy the Jews that existed in that day still exists. It's still around. And the people groups that are at the forefront of wanting to do that are the same people group as in the book of Esther. Get that? Yes, sir. So now I said turn to chapter 13 of the book of Isaiah. 
because Isaiah, as I mentioned, was prophesying well before any of this happened. And yet, God tells him exactly what he plans to do. Starting at verse 17, God describes Babylon's fall to the Medes and says, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them, against Babylon, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls, and ostriches will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there, and hyenas will howl in their fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. So here's mighty, magnificent, seemingly impregnable Babylon, and Babylon is going to fall to the Medes and the Persians. This is so certain that while Daniel is in Babylon, after uh, Belshazzar becomes king, Belshazzar decides to throw a feast. And he decides that since he has ransacked the temple of God, that the gold cups and the gold furnishings that were in the temple should be brought before him so that he can drink his wine and get drunk out of the golden cups and things that were actually dedicated to the worship of God. So they can't be used for any common purpose. He has them brought out to him while he's busy reveling with these holy objects. That's when a hand, a disconnected hand shows up and starts writing on the whitewashed walls. And the whitewashed walls have torches along them so you can see the writing on the wall. By the way, you will occasionally hear the phrase, the handwriting on the wall. No, 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 that's not the original phrase. The original phrase was a hand writing on the wall. The hand of God shows up and writes many, many tekel yufarsum. And it means you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. But also if you break down the etymology of the words, that word yufarsum has the same root as the Persians. One of the interpretations of it is your fall is going to come about through the Persians. Now, that night, as the Bacchanalia feast was going on under King Belshazzar, the Persians were outside the walls. The Medes and the Persians had joined together and were laying waste to everything in their path, but they got to seemingly impregnable Babylon. The reason the Babylon was seemingly impregnable was because they had a water source, which means once people were inside the walls and they had plenty of food and grain and animals inside the walls, they also had a flowing water source that went under the wall and came into Babylon. The Persians figured out that if they just dammed up the river, then the river water would stop flowing and they could send their armies under the wall. 
and come out on the other side, and all of a sudden they're in the city. Go open a gate, go open a door, boom, in comes the marauding army that just happened to, just providentially, just because God got lucky, that just happened to come in during a great big Bacchanalia feast so that the people are all drunk and not ready to fight, and here come the Medes and the Persians, exactly like God had predicted. He predicted it through Daniel. He predicted it through Isaiah, that this is what is going to happen. Babylon is going to fall at the hands of the Medes and the Persians. He predicted it hundreds of years in advance, and guess what happened? Human history tells us that that's exactly what happened. Now, what if... Babylon hadn't fallen to the Medes and Persians, what if the Greeks got there first? What if the Greeks conquered Babylon? What if the Greeks figured out, you know, we could block up this river and go under the wall and we could conquer Babylon? What if they got there first? Well, then the Bible's wrong, God is wrong, and we can have no more confidence in God's ability to prophesy the future. But God doesn't just, get this right, God doesn't just look down the corridor of time and see what's going to happen and then say this is what's going to happen because I'm looking into my big crystal ball and I can tell the future that way. God decrees what's going to happen. He announces way in advance what's going to happen, what people group he's going to use, what people group is going to rise, what people group is going to fall. And he's doing it all because of his people Israel. And so he can say in advance, I'm going to use the Medes and the Persians in order to conquer the Babylonians, and then I'm going to make Babylon a waste. Well, sure enough, that happened. Does Babylon exist? No. The area of Babylon is modern-day Iraq. Is Iraq a desert? Iraq is a desert today, exactly like what Isaiah predicted was going to happen. And during the time that, um, oh, who's the fellow that was? Saddam Hussein, thank you. During the time that Saddam Hussein was ruling in Iraq and raising up armies, he decided that he was going to rebuild Babylon. And he wanted... He put uh, Babylon on a coin. He did. He made a coin with Babylon on one side and on the other side images of Nebuchadnezzar and himself. (laughs) Because he saw himself as the new Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. And he was going to recreate Babylon and recreate the hanging gardens and, you know, the seven wonders of the world. This was all going to come back under his reign. Did he do any of that? Does Babylon exist today? No. He was found hiding underground in a hole he dug for himself, and then he was executed, and he accomplished none of that. Why? Because God said in Isaiah that it was never going to be rebuilt. And even though men can lay plans to rebuild it, if God says it's not going to be rebuilt, it's not going to be rebuilt. That's the way history works. So, again, these things that the Bible tells us in the Old Testament resonate with what's going on in our own day because what's going on in the Middle East right now has foreshadows, has its basis in the Old Testament. And I keep saying and saying you can't really understand the world if you don't understand the Bible. If you understand the Bible, you'll understand what's going on in the world. When you see the Jews today being such a highly hated group of people and you see coalitions and nations come together and say let's destroy Israel let's push it off the map 
when you see the press around the world taking sides against Israel and saying that even the skirmish that happened this week was all Israel's fault, there is this very dedicated hatred against the Jews and against Israel that really has no explanation. It's a sliver of land. It's not doing any harm. It's one of the few democracies in the Middle East. They keep giving away land, trying to make peace, and yet as much as they give away, the wars keep on, keep on happening there in the Middle East. Okay, why? Why? Well, because they are the people of God who had rebelled against God. Therefore, God is putting them through a time of punishment while his attention is on the times of the Gentiles, but God hasn't forgotten them. God has not abandoned them. That's exactly what Paul writes about in Romans 10. Has God abandoned those people whom he foreknew? God forbid, because God has every intention of turning his attention back to them, establishing the kingdom, and they are finally going to recognize their Messiah. Mm -hmm. So all of that is still to come, proven by not only the fact that the Bible says it, but human history keeps doing it. Human history keeps validating what the Bible says about God's dealings with Israel and that the Israelites, that the Jews, during this time of punishment were going to be hated. Jesus was hated without a cause. What did he ever do to be hated? All he did was walk around telling people the truth and healing people and doing miracles. That's a good guy. You want that guy around. No, kill him. Put him on a cross. Get him out of the way. He was hated without a cause. Jesus used that same phraseology to say that we who belong to him are going to be hated without a cause. And his people, the Jews, God's chosen nation, are always going to be hated on this planet without a cause. And you see it happening right now. You turn on the news right now, and you can see it right now. So... Okay, so I went a little off my introduction of the book of Esther, but turn, if you would, to the end of 2 Corinthians. So turn back a little bit. 2 Corinthians. Se- uh, Corinthians. Chronicles. Turn to the end of 2 Chronicles. Or 2 Corinthians. It won't match what I'm saying, but if you want. At the end of 2 Chronicles, you're going to read about Zedekiah, who was ruling in Judah, how he was overtaken by the Chaldeans, how he was taken into Babylon. Let's start at verse 17. I'm in the very last chapter, the very end of Second Chronicles. I'm in chapter 36. Chapter 36, verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them. God brought up against the Israelites, the king of the Chaldeans. It's Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned down the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped the sword, he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. Okay, what that's about is that God said the time that you're going to be out of the land is 70 years because you haven't been keeping my yearly Sabbaths and you haven't been keeping my years of Jubilee. You haven't been keeping my every seven year Sabbaths. And since you haven't been doing that, the land deserves its rest. And the only way to accomplish that is to take you out of the land. So I'm going to take you for 70 years into Babylon. Somebody look up Jeremiah 29.10. Do that if you would, Tom. And behind you, Josiah, look up Jeremiah 25.11. And you're going to see that God promises through Jeremiah that they are only going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Now, as that 70 years is wrapping up, that's when we find Daniel praying to God and saying, okay, the 70 is about up. I'm just praying that you do what you said you're going to do. You said it's going to be 70 years, so take your people back. And then God sends an angel who ends up not just talking about that 70 years, but then says, I'm going to show you 70 times seven and gives him a 490-year prophecy. And so Daniel is in Babylon during this time. Daniel is in Babylon as it makes the change from Nebuchadnezzar over into the Medo-Persian rulers. The Medes and the Persians were ruled by Cyrus the Persian as well as Darius the Mede. They were like co-regents, co-rulers, until the Persians became more powerful than the Medes. So this is all predicted beforehand by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is who Daniel is reading when Daniel starts talking about the 70 years. Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay, so God has made a promise to Israel through Jeremiah that you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. Instead of just getting the Chaldeans to let the Jews go, instead, because they conquered Israel, God is going to make sure that another people group conquers them. So they're going to be punished for the way that they punished Israel. How's he going to do it? Through the Medes and the Persians. And he says so. Jeremiah 25, 11. What have you got there, Josiah? This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 70 years. It's very clear. It's very definite. 70 years. So here we are at the end of Second Chronicles. Those who escaped the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. So now we know what the next kingdom coming is going to be to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its, of its desolation, it kept its Sabbaths until 70 years were complete. Verse 22, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. 
which is in Judah, whoever there is among you of his people, may the Lord his God be with them and let him go up. So let him go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it if you feel inspired to do it because God, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me this assignment. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. You turn the page, you're in the book of Ezra. And the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, which we will get to, are about that rebuilding effort, which started fine, started good, started strong, and then just kind of didn't complete the task. And so then during the time of Artaxerxes, it's, it's reestablished and it's done again. Esther takes place during that time that the Persians are ruling. In fact, the particular king is uh, Ahasuerus, who is known as Xerxes I. He ruled from 486 to 465. So we're really talking about 465 years before Jesus. But remember that there's also a 400-year gap where God is silent before you get to the New Testament. And you're at 465 right now, so you're right on the cusp of God going silent with Israel. He will have done everything he said he was going to do. He will have taken them back to their land. They can rebuild the temple. They can rebuild the city. And then he just goes silent until John the Baptist walks on the planet, until Jesus himself walks on the planet. Suddenly there's a prophet in Israel, and God is speaking again. And what are they saying? Who are they preaching to? Who are they talking about? Israel. And what's the first gospel that Jesus goes out preaching? The gospel of the kingdom. Why is that so important? Because the Jews are still waiting for that kingdom. So there's continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And if you understand the history of the Old Testament, you can better understand not only what's in the New Testament, but what's going on in the world right now. All right, so Esther, we're finally there. Turn to the book of Esther. We'll see how far we get tonight. Basically, the empire of Ahasuerus extends from India all the way through Ethiopia and into the Middle East. So there are many, many provinces there. And so Jerusalem is just considered one tiny outpost of the larger kingdom. And yet, it's, it's through Jerusalem and through the Jews that God is going to work providentially, as he always does, in order to secure his people. All right, let's start reading. Let me tell you up front, oh, you kids, this is going to get a little PG here. Because uh, Ahasuerus, Xerxes I, not a good guy. What a surprise. A Persian king that's not a good guy. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all the princes 
and attendants and the army officers of Persia and Media, for the nobles and for the princes of his provinces, and they were all going to be in his presence. So he's making a grand banquet for everybody else that has any sort of power under him. He's going to show off his magnificence. He's going to show off his splendor. Verse 4 says, And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for 180 days. Half a year. He's putting on a party. For half a year, he's showing off for everybody. People are coming and people are going, people in waves, and he's just showing off for folks. Then, not content with just showing off his splendor to the rich, the mighty, the powerful, the princes. He then, verse 5, when those days were completed, after that six months had passed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days, for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, just the common folk, everybody. We're going to have a seven-day banquet because I want you to all glorify me as your king. So for all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And there were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds. And the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. So he's getting all these poor folks together, everybody who's in the capital, anybody who's working. Doesn't matter what your job is or what you do. You get to come to the king's banquet for seven days and you get to see the splendor, the marble and the gold and the silver. And you get to drink wine and you get to eat your fill. And you know that it's the king that's giving you all that. So what are you going to do at the end of seven days? You're going to go, wow, who's like our king? Our king is really, really something. This is an interesting little thing that's thrown in. And the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. All that means is people weren't forced to drink. But if they wanted to drink, they could drink all they wanted. But nobody was forced to drink. Queen Vashti, who is his queen at the moment, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the banquet that he threw was apparently for all the men. And then she threw a banquet for the women in the king's palace. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you can read the word drunk in there if you want, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman and Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zithar, and Carcass. That's an interesting name, Carcass. I don't know how else to pronounce that, but, but Carcass, you're stuck with that. Who were the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus? Do you know what eunuchs are? Do I need to explain that? If you were going to be around the women who belonged to the king, 
the king had to be sure that you weren't going to get involved with those women in any kind of physical or sexual way. And so there were men who were, instead of being stallions, they were made geldings. Oh. So that the king could trust them around the women. And so there were seven of these eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. He told them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown on in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. Okay, that's the first thing you're going to find out is this king likes beautiful women. And so he wants to show off his queen. So put on your crown, put on your splendor, and come here. Let me just show you off to the people. So that the people are all going to go, this king is so great. And he gave us food and he gave us wine. He's got all this magnificence around him. Oh, he's got a beautiful queen as well. So he commands the eunuchs to go tell her to come show off. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him because, after all, he's the king. He's the magnificent king. He's the ruling king over a gigantic area. You don't say no to him. But Vashti apparently knew him well enough and felt confident that she could say, no, I'm not going to come show off. And perhaps she was just busy with her own banquet. Maybe she was just busy with the women that were there having their banquet. But she refused to come, and it made him so angry. Verse 13, then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina and Shethar and Matha, Tarshish, Mears, Marcina and Mem. Oh, Mamukan, that would be the way to pronounce it. And by the way, you're going to hear more about Mamukan coming up, so I need to say that correctly each time. And Mamukan, who were the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. Okay, all that means is when the king sits on his throne, when he's ruling, he has seven princes. Those seven princes help him to rule over the areas that he can't get to. So they rule over all these various provinces, but they report to the king, and the king has ultimate control over them. And so now he wants to ask them, look, I just commanded my wife to come, and she didn't come, and what should I do about this? Well, the princes are already completely on his side, because the prince's argument is going to be, wait, if she gets away with it, what's that going to mean for us? What about our wives? What if our wives start telling us no and start saying, well, Vashti said no to the king. So they don't want any part of this. So verse 15, according to law, what is to be done with King Vashti? This is what he's asking. Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princess, Mamukin said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ohajuerus. That's right. She didn't just insult you. She insulted us. And doggone it, she insulted all the people. 
The people at home right now in their mud huts scraping out a, a living day to day are really upset that Vashti didn't come do this. Sounds like the folks in Congress who are saying, you know what Americans want? I'll tell you what Americans want. We're doing this for the people. It's the children. We're doing it for the children. So anyway, they're so offended that they say Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. In other words, well, if the queen doesn't have to do it, then I don't have to do it. So don't tell me to sweep your house. I'm not about to. Anyway. Vacuuming? What's vacuuming? Anyway. Make your own food. Verse 18. And this day, the women, the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. And there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. So that one act of rebellion the princes all say, well, then that's it. She shouldn't come into your presence anymore. You're the king. And remember, the kings, especially in the Middle East, were often thought of not just as royalty, but often as deity. And so to be in his presence was a really rare and special thing because he had the right to say who lived and who died, which is why later in the book it's going to be such a big thing when Esther enters the king's presence because he has the right to say yay or nay or kill her on the spot. So that's why I think this whole story is at the beginning of the book of Esther, so that you get some sense of the kind of king you're dealing with here. You're dealing with a king who has absolute authority, who can rule over life and death in his kingdom, and who can raise up somebody to great authority and power, as you're going to see in this book, and can take another one down and have them killed. So that's who you're dealing with here. Verse 20, and when the king's edict which he shall make is heard throughout all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. In other words, the high and the mighty and the common people in the streets, across the board, all of the wives are going to be obedient to their husbands because they're going to find out that the king punished Vashti for not doing what he told her to do. So make that a royal edict. Make that a law of the Medes and the Persians so it can't be altered. This word, verse 21 says, please the king and the princes. Well, yeah, they're the ones pushing for it. And the king did as Mamukan proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. That's the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti, 
and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Remember that part of the decree was, and let the king give Vashti's royal position to another who's more worthy than her. So now the king is going to go on a hunt for another woman. She's got to be beautiful because Vashti was beautiful. And she has to completely please the king. And so there's going to be a process where all the provinces are told to start rounding up the finest of their women and sending them to be auditioned by the king. After these things, after the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. And let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. That's what the NASB says. It uses the word cosmetics. In other words, let them get beautified. Give them the oils and give them the baths and let them put on their absolute best version of themselves. Well, we're going to find out that that process of the women just preparing themselves to even go in front of the king takes a year. Verse 4 says, Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in the place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Of course it would please the king. All of his advisors and all his princes are saying, gather up the most beautiful women. You audition them all, and whoever pleases you gets to be queen. Of course he's going to go, yeah, all right, good plan. What were you going to say? You think? Yeah, oh, you think? Yeah. Yeah, he was like, good plan. Only he said it in Persian. <laughs> now, there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai. He was the son of Jair a son of Shimei, a son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Her Jewish name was Hadassah, which means myrtle tree. But her name in the uh, Persian language became Esther, which probably means star. So he's bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. And now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. This is the beginning of absolute sovereign providence. Do you think God knew that she was an attractive woman? Sure. Do you think God, he made her that way. He made her that way on purpose because he had a job for her. He had a goal for her. He had a purpose for her. So he designed her according to the purpose. And then, really lucky, that she just happened to be in a place where Mordecai, the man who raised her, just happened to be in Susa, which just 
happened to be the capital, and, and he hears the decree and realizes that she's beautiful, and according to the, dec the decree, she has to go be presented to the king. All of which you could just read as happenstance, but you're going to see as we continue going through the book that this is all sovereign providence. God is setting it all up like dominoes, just waiting to flick that first one down and everything's going to fall into place. So verse 8 says, So it came about, when the command and the decree of the king, when those were heard and many young ladies were gathered to Susa, the capital, into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased Haggai. Notice that. Haggai who is a eunuch, who cannot be interested in her in a physical way, so her beauty is only serving the king's desire, not his own. Nevertheless, he is pleased by her. What does that tell you about her? It tells you that not only was she beautiful outside, but there was something about her character, there was something about her nature where even the eunuch that was collecting the women, when you're collecting women, that, that's a whole bunch of women, all the beautiful virgins in my whole kingdom. And yet, she's the one that stood out to Haggai. And it wasn't because of her outward adornments and beauty as much as it appears to have been, just her character and her nature, because look at what he does. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him so he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So she's kind of getting the chief seat and she's got seven maids to attend her and she's getting her food and her cosmetics, everything that she needs, her oils, her spices, everything she needs, she's getting from Haggai because he favors her. Now, part of that I would certainly accredit to there appears to be something about Esther's character, but it's also absolute sovereign providence. It's also God who is the one who shows favor among people. If anybody looks on you favorably today, it is because God has shown favor in their eyes toward you. And so God made sure that not only was she in this, for lack of a better word, cattle call, but that she stood out so much that Haggai's completely on her side, which means she's going to get the best of everything, so she's going to be the one that's most pleasing to the king. The young lady pleased him, found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred. Okay, she didn't mention she's a Jew. Why? Because Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make that known. Okay, if you want to find favor with the king, don't mention you're a Jew. And every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. 
Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into the king Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulation for women, for the days of her beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. Well, after they had had that year behind them, verse 13 says, the young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. If she wanted any headgear, she wanted any particular clothes, if she wanted anything she felt was going to make her more attracted to the king, she got. In the evening, she would go into the king, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Sha'agaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go again into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name by the king. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Ahabiel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as daughter, when she went into the king, she didn't request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised her to take. In other words, Haggai, who knows the king, who knows what the king likes, says, this is what you do. This is what you wear. This is how you go. This is how you look. It, and sure enough, the ploy between the two of them works. Verse 16 says, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than all the women and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet. He called it Esther's banquet for all his princes and his servants. And he also made a holiday for all the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when she was under his care. A couple more verses. We're done with that chapter. Let's do it. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry at the king and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And now when the plot was investigated and found to be true, they were both hanged from gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. That's the the introduction to the book of Esther. That lays out the basic plot points because everything else that's going to happen in the book all happens as a result of everything we've read tonight. How she ends up to be queen, how Mordecai just happens, just so lucky. He just happens to overhear a plot by a couple of the officers who are going to rise up against the king. He tells her she's got the king's ear. She tells the king... And the king 
checks it out, finds out it's going to be true. Well, later in the book, the king's going to be woken from his sleep one night. He's just not going to be able to sleep, and he wants to do a little light reading. So he decides to start reading through the Chronicles of the King. And oh, yeah, what does he find in the Chronicles of the King? Oh, yeah, there was that guy, Mordecai, way back when, who informed me that some men were going to try to kill me. Was anything ever done for him? I mean, he saved my life. Did anybody do anything for him? That's all part of what's coming up. And along the way, the hatred of the Jews is going to rise up. And along the way, we're going to meet the great criminal of the Old Testament, the great criminal of the book of Esther, Haman. So bring your noisemakers. Be ready to boo Haman. And uh, he'll, he'll be coming up in the not-too-distant future. Okay, so you understand where the book of Esther fits? Do you get the overall history of the Old Testament and where Esther is? Mm-hmm. You know where it's happening historically and in time. And it's going to be God's providence one more time, protecting, looking after his people because he remains faithful to his people. And that's really the point of the whole thing. Okay? Right. Questions? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.